0: I don't want everybody to vote elections are not won by a majority of people they never have been from the beginning of our country and they are not now as a matter of fact our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contributes tab at bestofaleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of a Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Decode DC, The Majority Report, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, The Tom Hartman Program, Democracy Now!, and The Bradcast.
0: The first part of this is not amazing at all. You already know what happened here in the last set of elections in 2014. Republicans controlled uh, the Senate. They took control of it. Uh, there's now 54 Republican senators and 46 senators that caucus with the Democrats. Uh, so 54 to 46, the Republicans lead in the Senate. Okay, nobody's surprised by this. Now, you want to know how many uh, votes went in the direction of the Democrats and how many in the direction of the Republicans. Now that's where it gets interesting. Now. Understand that uh, the Senate uh, has about a third of the of the body up for election every two years. So they rotate. So this is a collection of the people that are currently in the Senate over the past three elections. How many votes did they accrue? And this is amazing. The 46 Democrats uh, in the Senate have a combined 67.8 million people who voted for them. The 54 Republicans... Have only 47.1 million people who voted for them. So even though the Republicans control the Senate, 20 million less people voted for them. Now, how's that possible? Well, it's possible because of the structure of the Senate. So there's two Democrats from California, for example, the most popular state, that get millions upon millions of votes. And then you get a state like Idaho that'll have two Republican senators. And there's like three and a half people who live in Idaho but those two senators count the same as the two senators from california now the house is supposed to balance that out but in reality as we know from the last election democrats got more votes in the house as well but still overwhelmingly lost the house because of gerrymandering so in this insane so-called democracy that we have democrats get more votes in both houses and they don't control either And in the senate they have 20 million more votes and they're in the minority Welcome to America, welcome to democracy. This makes sense to any of you,
2: John Koza was so captivated by the Electoral College that he decided to make a board game about it.
3: Back in the 60s, when I was a graduate student, uh, I published a a very complicated uh, board game based on the peculiar effects of this winner-take-all system that lets candidates win the presidency uh, without campaigning in all the states and without necessarily getting uh, the most popular votes in all 50 states.
2: Consensus, a game of electoral strategy. Some people from the Decode DC team, Mark, Liz, Bird, and I, we got a copy of Coza's board game, Consensus, and we took a couple of hours out of our day to play it. The candidate must move one step beyond the last regular slot of any one district. Of course, this move fails if there is a conflict, which may not, which may even be with the candidate who cannot meet condition B and whose move cannot succeed. <laughs> Uh, the game itself was very complicated. It was a commercial failure. So we don't really know what entry rule number seven means?
3: I don't have understand, re- like, <laughs> I don't
4: understand like, the entire objective.
3: But uh, I have retained an interest in the subject uh, all these years. And now, John Koza
2: is trying to change the way we vote for president. The system that says the winner of each state's popular vote should get all of that state's electoral votes the winner-take-all system, as Coza calls it, that's actually not in the Constitution. It's a law that states passed individually.
3: It was not in the Federalist Papers. It was never debated at the Constitutional Convention. The founders were dead for decades before it became the predominant system.
2: The Constitution gives the state legislatures the power to decide where their electoral votes go. So what is trying to do is get states to change their laws— to abandon that winner-take-all system.
3: Our plan would get a group of states together to pass laws saying that they will award their electoral votes to the presidential candidate who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states in the District of Columbia.
2: So Dr. Koza figures, what if a bunch of states got together, pooled all of their electoral votes, and then agreed to give them to the winner of the national popular vote? If you got to that threshold of 270 electoral votes, congrats, you're president. The plan would basically make the state-by-state system obsolete. It would get around the electoral college system as we know it today. The way Koza sees it, that would make every citizen's vote politically equal. So his group wrote a law that does just that.
3: So what we've done is we've gone from state to state usually visiting with all the legislators in a given uh, state legislature. And we've pushed to get our law enacted. Now, as of today, the law has been enacted by 11 states having 165 electoral votes.
2: The law doesn't actually take effect until it's been enacted by states representing 270 electoral votes. Koza says the Electoral College is basically sending a message to candidates. You don't need to bother with every state. Only a handful of states are considered battleground states or swing states, states that might go red, might go blue. The rest of the states reliably go one way or the other. So candidates only spend their time in states that aren't a sure thing. Like in 2000, Koza says that 45% of the advertising money spent in the entire general election campaign
3: was spent just in Florida. So, as you can see, uh, when presidential candidates campaign in just one or two or maybe three states, they become very familiar with those states, and they become very familiar with the issues of importance to those states to the exclusion of issues that may be important to the rest of the country.
2: So it almost seems like a significant portion of the population kind of gets forgotten about.
3: Well, they are. So in the 2012 campaign, there was no campaigning whatsoever in the general election in 38 of the 50 states. But even worse than that, two-thirds of the money and two-thirds of the visits uh, went into just four states, which was Ohio, Florida, Virginia, and Iowa. So what's what's the main
2: issue there? So we're talking about campaign visits. What does that translate to later?
3: Well, uh, you're right. Uh, You're absolutely right. It's not just campaigns. And whether babies get kissed in Florida, it's government. Uh, So after you're elected president, you're thinking of your reelection. So one of the first things George W. Bush did in 2001 was uh, the free trade president from the Free Trade Party uh, came out for steel quotas because that was very important potentially to keeping Pennsylvania and at the time West Virginia in his camp. And so there's all sorts of effects on government policy. COSA says
2: battleground states get 7% more presidentially controlled federal grants, twice as many disaster declarations.
3: Almost anything the White House controls is keyed to the states that the president learned about and campaigned in and knew were important to his election, and more importantly, knows that it's important for his reelection. Or if he's not running for reelection, the reelection of his successor from the same party. Another effect is uh, turnout is 11 percent higher in the closely divided battleground states because the people in the other 38 states have a feeling in some vague way that their vote doesn't count, and and in terms of president, they're correct. And then philosophically, uh, really every vote should be equal. There's no particular justification why the state of Ohio and Florida should be the focal point of presidential elections. We're the United States, we have 50 states, all of which are important, and there's no particular reason why we should have an election system which focuses two-thirds of the presidential campaign in just four states, and 100% of the campaign in just 12 states.
2: Next November, we'll all be casting our vote for the president, and it'll be business as usual. A winner-take-all distribution of the electoral votes in each state, just like every other election for the past 130 years. But if Dr. Koza and the National Popular Vote movement get their way, this might be the last winner-take-all election. Eleven states have already signed on to the National Popular Vote Plan, with 165 electoral votes. If Koza and his group can get states to sign over 105 more electoral votes, the way we pick our president could soon change completely.
5: Let's talk about this issue of, of voter suppression. This week, um, I think uh, Think Progress had, uh, had reported about a new paper entitled Voter Identification Laws and Suppression of Minority Votes. It was researchers from the University of California, San Diego and uh, Bucknell University, which uh, used data to compare states with strict voter ID laws. To those that allow voters without photo ID to cast a ballot. And they found a clear suppression effect on minority turnout in those strict voter ID states. I mean, I, I know this does not come uh, as a surprise to you. Will this type of uh, data um, uh, uh, have any implications other than just one more, uh, one more example of what we already know?
6: I think this report confirms, like you said, things that we already know. There was a major study from the Government Accountability Office in 2014, and it found that voter ID laws in Kansas and Tennessee depressed voter turnout by two to three uh, percent. And the biggest impact w- was among uh, young voters, first-time voters, and African-American voters. And, and so uh, that was consistent with both the data that, that we know about, but also why these laws were being passed in the first place. Because if you look at the data, it's very clear in terms of who doesn't have these IDs disproportionately, uh, that it is younger voters, uh, African-American voters, Hispanic voters, Asian-Americans, other voters of color, lower- voters uh, and elderly voters, nearly all of whom, except for elderly voters, are Democratic-leaning uh, constituencies. Uh, and, and so uh, I think that people are starting to see some clarity here. However, I think that it's going to have to go beyond reports. I think we're going to have to keep spotlighting stories of people who are turned away from the polls or people who have a lot of difficulty complying with these laws so people can see what they're really about. And then also just to be on the drum uh, that there is absolutely no voter, voter impersonation fraud to make make these kind of laws necessary. So we're creating these new restrictions that people are being burdened by, but there's no evidence to justify them in the first place while there is evidence that people are being turned away from the polls.
5: Does, does a study like this have any implications in any potential lawsuits? I mean, are there, are there suits on the horizon where I uh, mean, we certainly had some in the run up uh, to the, uh, the, the, the 2014 elections? Uh, do we anticipate any um, in the run-up to the 2016 election where this becomes, you know, uh, some uh, piece of evidence, or uh, is it just going into the
6: ether? I think it will become evidence. I mean, there, there's already a lot of reports out there that are that are in these testimonies where uh, people are talking about the number of people who don't have IDs, the number of people who are turned away from the polls. So there's both um expert witness uh, testimony, and there's also just testimony of voters themselves uh, who have been turned away from the polls. And I I wrote about one this week in in North Carolina that I I thought was very persuasive the story of this 94-year-old woman, Rosanelle Eaton. Tell us about that. Well, this is a really remarkable story because Rosanelle Eaton is a 94-year-old African-American woman. She was someone who, during the Jim Crow era, had to take a mule two hours to the county courthouse where she had to recite the preamble to the Constitution word for word and then also pass a written literacy test just to be able to register to vote, something that very few people in North Carolina in the 1940s who were African-American were able to do. She was one of the first black registered voters there. She had voted for 70 years and was also a voting rights activist. She had registered many thousands of voters herself. And then when North Carolina passed this strict voter ID law, in 2013, she went through this kind of Kafka-esque odyssey to try to get her documents in order because her name on her voter registration card did not match her name on her driver's license, which is a problem that, that a lot of women have, and in particularly uh, elderly women who may have been born uh, in the segregated South, not at a hospital, and, and, and may not have had some of this documentation in, in the first place. And so, between uh, in one month, right. in There January- are many,
5: there are many elderly people who. Do- don't have birth certificates, yeah. there are many African Americans uh in the south uh, elderly and I guess maybe somewhere between middle aged and you know what we would contemplate um uh that 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 also a lack of birth certificates uh and and so this is a a real phenomenon this isn't like why wouldn't you have these
6: papers it's yeah it's a real but, phenomenon. The other thing is she had she had these documents and and she used to try to match everything but to to do this over the course of a month, she had to take eleven different trips to state agencies. She had to take four trips to the DMV. She had to take four trips uh, to two different Social Security offices. And she had to take three trips to different banks, which took basically over 20 hours and 200 miles of travel just so she could comply with a law, uh, that would have disenfranchised her after she had voted for 70 years. I mean, it's totally insane. Um, what, what someone like that has to go through and, and many more people when faced with this would just give up. They would, they would, you know, spend one trip to the DMV or somewhere else if they even were motivated enough to do that. And if they didn't get their documents in order, they would just say, forget about it. But she was so motivated that she took 11 trips. Um, but these are the kind of hurdles that people are having to jump through now because of these new laws.
5: All right. So give us a breakdown in terms of the, um, uh, the Republican presidential candidates. Um, they have all I mean you know uh at the top of my head I seem to remember Jeb Bush uh being governor of Florida in 2000 for some reason that election sticks in my head quite a bit uh and of course there was the the suppression and the disenfranchisement of literally thousands of of registered voters but uh, just give us a quick breakdown of the republican presidential candidates to the extent that uh, they're still in the race of um uh, of where they are on this i mean i i guess it's to be anticipated these are not um these are not politicians who are trying to expand the voter rolls in this country?
6: No, I mean, they all have awful records when it comes to voting rights. Um, they, they all have either supported the gutting of the Voting Rights Act or do not support restoring the Voting Rights Act. They've been proponents of things like strict voter ID laws or cutbacks in early voting or making it harder uh, to register to vote or disenfranchising ex-felons. You look at someone like Ted Cruz, for example, from Texas, I mean, he was an early proponent of voter ID laws. He has repeatedly defended his own state's voter ID law, where you can vote with a handgun permit, but not a student ID, which has been blocked three different times under the Voting Rights Act. But, but yet he still has not given up uh, pushing for this thing. You look at someone like Marco Rubio, uh, who is from Florida, which had a lot of Uh, well-known voter suppression. In in 2012, there were six-hour lines uh, at the polls because the state cut back early voting. And Rubio was recently asked in Iowa uh, what he thought about six-hour lines in Miami. And he he responded very bizarrely, uh, well, that was only on election day. Uh, First off, as if that excuses it, I mean, yes, there's usually long lines on election day if there are going to be lines because that's when the election is. Um, But also in Florida, there were long lines throughout the early voting period so he he really uh, displayed a, a, a remarkable amount of either willful or um, feigned ignorance about what was going on in his home state. Jeb Bush, as you mentioned, who was governor of Florida, was governor when there was a disastrous voter purge, when many thousands of people were wrongly labeled as felons and were prevented from voting. Uh, in Ohio, John Kasich signed legislation that cut back early voting, eliminated same-day voter registration. He is a supposed moderate in the race. Uh, Chris Christie vetoed legislation uh, that would have brought early voting and online registration and automatic. Voter registration to New Jersey, so all of these people, when when faced with efforts uh, to make it tougher to vote, have supported it, and they've all opposed efforts to make it easier to vote. Uh, and so it's very unfortunate that they're going around the country uh, trying to get people to vote for them uh, when they don't want uh, every eligible American to cast a ballot.
5: And we should, you know, we should make a point here that like, this is, you know, we we see some. Uh you know, I I guess some dissent on uh, some uh, programs within, you know, when when these people get up to debate, we see some modicum of dissent. There seems to be no dissent here. And this isn't I mean, as far as like a a political issue goes, right, this isn't something where there is a massive polling numbers which suggest that even the Republican base, I mean, it seems to me like it's clamoring. This isn't like one of their top issues, right? Voter ID laws. It's just something that somehow the entire Republican establishment has decided um, that this is something that is uncontroversial and we're just going to impose it wherever we are.
6: Well, I actually disagree with you on that. I think this has become a yet another litmus test in the Republican Party uh, in-, in the same way that you have to be uh, anti-abortion, in the same way that you-, you have to question the scientific consensus on climate change. I think that supporting things like voter ID laws is another box that you have to check. And, and. The reason I say that is because a, a, a while ago, Rand Paul uh, said that he still supported voter ID laws, but that the Republican Party should just back off a little bit in terms of how they talked about it, because it was offending people and it was hurting their outreach to African-Americans. And he was crucified. Why do
7: we, Every day, I crucify myself.
1: Cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way.
4: Why do we
7: crucify ourselves? Every day I crucify
4: Something important happened in the in the one contest that Bernie lost recently, Arizona. The voting was a catastrophe. Thousands upon thousands of people were told they weren't on the list or couldn't vote. Some people waited in line for as long as... Five hours. I mean, I don't don't know if i wait five hours to be president. (laughs) How did this happen? Well, a local reporter talked to the the woman in charge, uh, Maricopa County recorder Helen Purcell. And I got to I got to give a hand to this reporter. She's uh, tenacious.
8: Who's to blame for this? How could this have been prevented? What could be done differently going forward? Why did this happen? Did you not prepare enough for this? What could you have done differently?
4: that was all that was all within four minutes so come on helen though helen helen be honest with us who is to blame who's to blame for this these long lines
9: well, the voters for getting in line. <laughs> the voters for
4: getting in line? That's like saying, who's to blame for that uh, poor kid starving? Well, the kid for not eating enough. <laughs> I can't believe you just
8: said the voters are to blame for standing in line. Well, no, they're not to blame for standing in line, but they went to the polling places. I'm not blaming anybody. What the f-
4: are you talking about, Nancy Reagan? Can, can't can't you just tell she's dying to be like, who cares? The people in those lines were fing illegal aliens and commies. <laughs> we're not talking about real Americans. We're we're talking about like a, a bullshit Mexican standing in line to vote for a socialist Jew. <laughs> she didn't say that? But she said that.
7: (laughs) Here's the thing.
4: Arizona officials absolutely knew this was going to happen. They cut the number of polling places from 200 in 2012 to 60. So there there was one polling place for every 21,000 voters. And there was no parking. For every five thousand cars, there was like one parking spot a mile away with a vague "no parking" sign. that You have to like squint at, like you're, like you're doing a math equation. Like, how could how could there be parking but no stopping? I, I, why is there a line through a man? Is that? Is this an existential parking sign? (laughs) Here's why this is important beyond just the primary. Greg Pallas, the guy who uncovered how George Bush stole the 2000 election, said this catastrophe in Arizona was not an error by officials. This was a test. Democratic areas suffered, not Republican zones. This was a chance for the GOP to see whether they could make it nearly impossible for minorities to vote. And the test went swimmingly, (laughs) all right? Thousands didn't get to vote, and the media largely ignored it. Plus, Arizona has tried to do this type of thing before, keep minorities from voting. But the Voting Rights Act in the past stopped racist voter suppression. Yet in 2013, the Supreme Court invalidated it. So now... It's open season, all right! Hispanic and black people, you'll get what we call provisional ballots, which are just like real ones, except for one slight difference.
8: We have to allow them to vote, so we'll vote them a provisional ballot, which will not count, but we have to, to do the paperwork on that anyway.
4: Did she just say which will not count? Did she not get the memo? You're you're supposed to go, oh, yes, every provisional ballot will be carefully counted in this machine that looks like a paper shredder. And after we count them, a marching band comes out and fireworks go off and Bruce Springsteen pops up and sings the national anthem butt naked. <laughs> did, did she not get that memo? Oh,
8: Helen. So we'll vote them a provisional ballot, which will not count?
4: See, what we do with the provisional ballot is I personally wipe my ass with it and then I wrap it up in the script for Batman vs. Superman and then I put it in a flaming bag of sh which I then hurl at a voter.
7: <laughs> you know, it's,
4: it's a, cons- a time-consuming thing, but it's a labor of love.
6: <laughs>
4: Before the gutting of the Ro- Voting Rights Act, Maricopa County would have needed to receive federal approval for reducing the number of polling sites because Arizona was one of the 16 states with a long history of discrimination. So where is our mainstream media on this massive threat to our democracy. Well, MSNBC filed this crucial report. Hey,
10: ladies, Donald
11: Trump,
6: all the Republicans <laughs> protecting the Second <laughs> Amendment. Donald Trump has.
4: <laughs> MSNBC, we bring 24-7, we bring 24-7 Donald Trump-a-thon with the sound of gunfire over top of it, because America.
7: And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the man who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up next to, next you. to you and defender there still today. Because there ain't, ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA.
12: You'll remember back in 1981... The uh, co-founder of the Heritage Foundation and of, uh, actually, uh, no, he was the co-founder of the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC. Uh, Paul Weyrich, he was helping run the Reagan campaign. Uh, Conservative luminary. And uh, he had this to say about
0: voting. Now, many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome. Good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down.
12: So, you know, the Republicans figured this out. If we can suppress the vote, by the way, this is, you know, I mean, Jim Crow, right? Anybody? If we can suppress the vote, We win the elections, especially if we can selectively suppress the vote. If we can figure out a way to suppress the vote that's going to mostly hit students, retired people, people of color, poor people, people who live in big cities. If we can suppress those votes so that basically the, the only voters left are the rural white or suburban white voters, then, hey, Republicans get to control the world, and as uh, this is clip number three, as uh, Mike Terzai, who was the speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives in 2012. This was when Mitt Romney was running for the White House on the Republican side. And he was asked, well, you, you, do you think, you know, Mitt Romney's going to win? This is what he had to say. Voter ID, which is going to allow Governor Romney to win the state of Pennsylvania. Done. Right. So that was 2012 fast forward to yesterday this is glenn grothman he's a wisconsin republican and this is what he had to say
6: take me forward to november you know that a lot of republicans since 1984 in the presidential races have not been able to win in wisconsin why would it be any different for ted cruz or a donald trump well i think hillary clinton
11: is about the weakest candidate the democrats have ever put up and now we have photo id and i think photo id is going to make a little bit of a difference as well. See, photo ID, our voter suppression
12: laws are going to let us beat the Democrats in Wisconsin. These guys aren't even hiding it anymore. They're not, I mean, they're not even, they're not even pretending that they don't know what they're doing, which they've been pretending for the last decade is, oh, well, you know, we've got to stop voter fraud. You know, there's all those Mexicans who came here and without documentation, and they want to show up at the polls and vote for some liberal who's going to give them food stamps or something. I mean, this—I mean, this is the—I'm not exaggerating. This is how it. This is how it's played out on Fox News constantly. And the and the Democrats are going to encourage all those undocumented people from from Central and South America to vote Democratic. You bet. That's why we have got to have these ID laws to stop those Mexicans. Turns out. Mexicans don't vote in our election. Never have, never will. I'm talking about literally people who are citizens of Mexico. U.S. citizens vote in U.S. elections. You know, every, now that the Republicans have spent hundreds of millions of dollars, I mean, George W. Bush, just his administration spent over $70 million looking for voter fraud over an eight-year period while he was president, so that they could come up with some justification, some rationale some reason to make it harder to vote.
7: Make a stand, make a stand, make a choice, make a
3: choice. shout it loud, use your voice to open their eyes, to what's around, as around as the hate, tear them down.
8: In New York, voters are heading to the polls today for both the Democratic and Republican primary in one of the most closely watched races of the election. In the Republican race, Donald Trump has a commanding lead in the polls. On the Democratic side, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has touted his Brooklyn roots and is hoping to pull a major upset in New York, keeping his streak of victories alive. He's won eight of the last nine contests. But Hillary Clinton, who served eight years as a senator from New York, has remained in the lead in every opinion poll. On Monday, Clinton addressed supporters in Flushing, Queens. Well, we are so happy to be here and reaching out to every voter throughout Queens, throughout New York City, throughout the state. Uh, in order to turn people out to vote tomorrow because the kind of future that we represent where we break down barriers, we give people a chance to get ahead, and where we support immigrants and the dreams that immigrants have brought to our shores all of these years is very different than what the other side offers. So we hope everyone will come out and vote tomorrow. While Hillary Clinton urged everyone to come out and vote today, that's not an option for millions of New Yorkers. Thanks to the state's restrictive voting laws, last week, Bernie Sanders admitted New York will be a tough primary thanks to those voting rules.
12: We have a a system here in New York where independents can't get involved in the Democratic primary. Where young people who have not previously registered and want to register today just can't do it. So this is going to be a tough primary for us.
8: That's Senator Sanders speaking last week in front of 27,000 people in New York's Washington Square Park. While Sanders has held a series of massive rallies in New York, many of supporters can't vote today in the state's closed primary. Voting rights activists say New York has some of the most restrictive voting laws in the country. The state has no early voting, no Election Day registration, and excuse-only absentee balloting. The voter registration deadline for the primary closed 25 days ago before any candidate had even campaigned in New York. Meanwhile, independent or unaffiliated voters had to change their party registrations back in October, over 190 days ago, before any debate or any primary or caucus to vote in today's closed Democratic or Republican primaries. This will reportedly disenfranchise nearly 30 percent of New Yorkers. Donald Trump's own children did not manage to change their party registrations from independent to Republican in time to vote for their father. Meanwhile, WNYC is reporting the number of registered Democrats in Brooklyn dropped by 60,000 since November. And there's no clear reason why. During that same period, most counties in New York saw an increase in registered Democrats. This comes as a group of New Yorkers who saw their party affiliations mysteriously switched filed a lawsuit seeking to open New York's closed primary so that they can cast a ballot. The lawsuit is asking for an emergency declaratory judgment. That would make today's New York primary open, meaning any registered New York voter could cast a ballot in either party's primary. Well, for all this and more, we're joined by Ari Berman, senior contributing writer for The Nation, where he covers voting rights. His latest book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Ari. You wrote a piece in The Nation, 27 percent of New York's registered voters won't be able to vote in the state's primary. Can you explain this?
10: Yes. and Thanks for having me back, Amy. So nearly a third of New Yorkers can't participate in the primary because they are not registered with the Democratic or Republican Party. And New York has some of the most restrictive voter registration laws in the country. As you mentioned, people had to change their party affiliations back in October, when no one was paying attention to the New York primary. People had to register to vote 25 days before the election, before any candidate had campaigned in New York. And beyond that, New York has some of the worst voting laws in the country, unlike 37 states. We don't don't have early voting. Unlike 15 states, we don't have Election Day registration. Our Constitution doesn't even allow Election Day registration, because you have to register no later than 10 days before an election. We have excuse-only absentee ballots, meaning you have to prove you're out of town, and or you have to prove you have a disability to get an absentee ballot. I think it's sad that we are the fourth bluest state in the country, but have some of the worst voting laws. We rank below Texas, below North Carolina. Behind all of these states with new voting restrictions in terms of voter turnout, turnout, We ranked 44th in voter turnout in 2012. We got a D minus from the Center for American Progress and accessibility to the ballot. So regardless of which candidate you're for, regardless of whether you're for open or closed primaries, we should be for making it much easier to vote in New York.
8: Why is this, Ari? Why are these laws so restrictive in New York? Who passed these laws and when did they do it?
10: Both parties want to protect the status quo in New York, Amy. Democrats, by and large, are happy with the system. Republicans, by and large, are happy with the system. They just want their slice of the pie, and they want to protect it. Incumbents who are in power want— to stay that way. So, unlike states like Oregon and California, which have embraced reform, passing policies like automatic voter registration and election day registration, New York has not followed this trend for progressive reform. And I think that's really unfortunate. The one good thing that could come out of this primary with the Trump kids not being able to register, with so many Bernie supporters not being able to register, is that finally people are paying attention to just how bad New York's voting laws really are, how many people are shut out of the democratic process here.
8: So... Can you talk about um, this piece in the New York Daily News, which recently ran an article? Um, Hundreds of New York state voters to file suit calling the closed primary a threat to our democratic system after claiming their party affiliation mysteriously changed. The article quotes Joanna Viscuso, a 19-year-old from Long Island. She said she registered to vote as a Democrat during her college orientation at Adelphi University in 2004. Then she noticed last week that now her voter registration online says she's not affiliated with a party. Viscuso reportedly called Nassau Board of Elections and they told her she'd fi- filled out a form in September to change her party affiliation and sent it in October. But she claims she never did that. She says she's a first-time voter. She told the New York Daily News, as soon as I noticed it was changed, I was infuriated. And then when they said there was nothing I could do, I was still infuriated. All of a sudden, we can't vote? That's ridiculous, she said. How is this possible?
10: It's a very mysterious situation. We've seen similar things happen in other states. In Arizona, where there were five-hour lines at the polls because they reduced so many polling places, a lot of people also had their voter registration switched without them knowing. So people waited in five-hour lines and still weren't able to cast a ballot because they were not registered. In New York, what these voters should do is cast a provisional ballot and try to have that ballot counted after the election. There's going to be a lawsuit this morning to try to open up New York's primary. Regardless of whether or not that succeeds, people should go to the polls. They should vote today. They should cast a provisional ballot and try to get that counted afterwards.
8: A WNYC analysis of New York state voter enrollment statistics found that the number of active registered Democrats dropped there by 63,558 voters between November 2015 and now, April 2016. That translates into a 7 percent drop in registered Democrats in the borough. According to the NPR station in New York, WNYC— No other borough in New York City nor county in the rest of the state saw such a significant decline in active registered Democrats. In fact, only seven of the state's 62 counties saw a drop in the number of Democrats everywhere else. saw the numbers increase. Can you explain what's going on in Brooklyn?
10: What the board of elections in Brooklyn said is that they had changed the number of voters from active to inactive, and that's why there was such a big drop-off. But 60,000 people are a lot of voters to shift from active to inactive. So it's very possible that some active voters are going to be wrongly purged from the polls, and some people are going to show up to vote in Brooklyn, think they're registered, think they're active, and not be on the voting rolls. We have seen this in many other states, in Florida in 2000, in Ohio in 2004. I hope— how do
8: you become inactive? You become what determines
10: inactive this? By not voting in the past few elections. That's how you become inactive. But sometimes people don't vote for whatever reason and want to vote now. Other times people are wrongly labeled inactive and wrongly purged from the voting rolls. So we don't know enough to say what happened here. But it's disturbing that some people may have been put on inactive status if they are not, in fact, inactive. This
7: is our house.
1: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, demand modernized elections and restore the Voting Rights Act. It turns out that FDR was not quite right when he said, quote, nobody will ever deprive the American people of the right to vote except themselves, unquote. This year, 16 states will have new voting restrictions in place for the first time in a presidential election that disproportionately impacts seniors, people of color, young people, and low-income individuals. 16 million registered voters in the U.S. don't have the current government-issued ID needed to vote. In Texas alone, more than 600,000 registered voters won't be able to cast a ballot. In just a few years, we've cut more than 5% of the U.S. population out of our democratic process, and the vast impact of these new voter suppression laws are probably why 69% of Americans are actually against voter ID laws. And as we've heard today, we're even making things difficult for those who actually can vote by reducing polling places to intentionally cause long, discouraging wait times. To remedy our broken democracy, the Brennan Center for Justice outlines eight detailed actions to fix our system, including overturning Citizens United, establishing small donor public financing, ending partisan gerrymandering, and restoring the right to vote to those with past criminal convictions. We're already working on a lot of those things, so here's today's focus. Number one, restore the voting rights. Act by telling your legislators to pass the Rights Amendment Act and the Voting Rights Advancement Act, both currently in front of them, to stop voter suppression laws and redistricting. And two, tell your legislators that you demand a modern election system. A modernized election system would include allowing automatic and secure voter registration for every eligible voter when they interact with state government agencies with an option to decline. Offering online voter registration, allowing people to register or update their information at the polls, replacing outdated voting machines, and expanding early voting. This isn't earth-shaking stuff, but it's critical to a healthy democracy, and some progress is already being made. Bills that will launch automatic voter registration just passed in West Virginia and Vermont, and Illinois and Maryland are considering voter reform proposals right now. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment. segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if making sure our democratic processes are available to everyone is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about how to demand modernized elections and a restored Voting Rights Act via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Let's fight like our right to vote depends on it because for many, sadly, it does.
10: Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition With your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud As you stand with head on bowed, Weather beating on your brow Demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference In this fickle world of change
13: Yesterday, we also uh, had played the comments from this congressman, this Republican congressman, Glenn Grothman from Wisconsin, on WTMJ, the Milwaukee NBC affiliate up there. Uh, He was asked, Grothman was asked about how Republicans could possibly win the presidential race in November Since, you know, uh, Democrats have won Wisconsin uh, election after election up there in the presidential election in any event. And Grothman cited, of course, the draconian photo ID voting restrictions that were in place in Wisconsin on Tuesday for the first time in a major election up there. And, of course, they led to long uh, hours long lines in many areas where students in particular were voting because uh, most of the student IDs were not amongst the allowable ones. Uh, even though these students were legally registered to vote, 300,000 legally registered voters uh, don't have the type of ID now required in Wisconsin. And that is all because Republicans are pretending there's some sort of voter fraud epidemic that might be deterred by, these, uh, by photo ID, when in fact, it is merely a way to keep legitimate lawful voters, if largely Democratic-leaning ones, from being able to cast their vote at all. Uh, Scott Walker, Governor Scott Walker up there, his fellow Republicans, they were unable to show a single case of voter fraud in Wisconsin's recent history uh, that might have been deterred by this type of a law during the long trial that went on in which the federal judge found that this law, in fact, was in violation of the Voting Rights Act, is a, uh, a violation of the Constitution, and yet... An appellate court allowed the uh, the law to go forward anyway. Here was Con- uh, Congressman Grothman when he was asked about this law on WTMJ on Election Day, Tuesday uh, of this week. And he said out loud what Republicans are not supposed to say about these laws.
6: You know that a lot of Republicans since 1984 in the presidential races have not been able to win in Wisconsin. Why would it be any different for Ted Cruz or...
11: Donald Trump. Well, I think Hillary Clinton is about the weakest candidate the Democrats have ever put up, and now we have photo ID, and I think photo ID is going to make a little bit of a difference as well.
13: Oh, do you? Do you think so, Congressman? Setting aside the comment about Hillary Clinton because I, I actually just don't care to deal with that right now. I want to look at uh, you know, what he said, and Grothman is right. Uh, you know, keeping uh, 300,000 registered voters from being able to cast their vote this November could actually flip the state from Democratic to Republican. And those 300,000, as I said, those are just the registered voters. Never mind the eligible. There's many uh, more who are not registered who may want to register between now and and November who also don't have the type of photo ID that is uh, necessary now to vote in Wisconsin. So, yeah, you know, I've heard and I've heard from uh, some listeners, they, why are you always whining about this? And that was the word that was a word that a Twitter user used uh, yesterday after uh, after a broadcast yesterday. It was a word that Joe Scarborough used. He, he tweeted he wanted to know if people could stop whining now about photo ID rules. Now that there was record turnout in the Wisconsin primary on Tuesday. No, no, we cannot. No, we cannot stop whining about it, Joe. We cannot stop whining when uh, people lose their right to vote. And make no mistake, people did lose their right to vote on Tuesday. Many of them, and it will happen again in November. It doesn't matter how large the turnout was. That is not an indication of how many people had their rights stolen. Scott Walker said something similar. Oh, the the photo ID law worked just fine. Well, it didn't work. Well, maybe it did. For Scott Walker, it did work just fine. Here's a story. Lee, Leroy Switlick. He has voted uh, for 46 years in his hometown of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But Switlick, who is legally blind, was unable to obtain a piece of photo ID that would comply with the state's strict new voter ID law in order to cast a, a regular ballot in Tuesday's primary. Despite, despite Walker's claim that the state's photo ID law, quote, works just fine, some voters were actually prevented from voting on Tuesday, And the burdens were disproportionately felt by low-income voters, people of color, seniors, people with disability, and, yes, students. When Switlik went to the DMV to obtain an uh, an ID card to try to vote, according to uh, Samantha Lackman at Huffington Post, he brought his birth certificate with him, a utility bill, a property tax statement, and a Medicare card. He's voted in Wisconsin since he was 21 years old. He's now 67. And remember, he's blind. He said he went up there uh, to the counter and the gentleman behind the counter said, this stuff is no good. You've got to have a picture ID. How do I know you are who you say you are? So Switlett's documents proved his name and date of birth, his Wisconsin residency, his citizenship, but they didn't prove his identity. According to this guy, he needed a piece of I.D. with his photo and signature like a passport. But he had none of the quote unquote acceptable documents to get this photo I.D. He said, how do I get an I.D. card if I don't have an I.D. card? He ultimately decided uh, uh, to vote, as Whitlick did, for Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton with a provisional ballot, and now he's hoping to get an ID to make his ballot count before the Friday afternoon deadline. So, if you pa- if you cast a provisional vote in Wisconsin because you didn't have the ID, you still have until Friday, till Friday afternoon, to try to get an ID and and to bring it in. That is not easy to do for many people. Carrie Venteris of Madison also had uh, to vote with a provisional ballot on Tuesday. The 41-year-old has a disability that makes it difficult for her to get around. She moved from Illinois to Wisconsin in December and hadn't yet had a chance to get a Wisconsin driver's license. When a friend told her that she couldn't actually vote with her Illinois license, remember, she has one in Illinois. And they're not supposed to be checking your, your residency on these matters. So we know it's her. But this is the rules that they made in order to keep people, that the Republicans passed in order to keep people from from casting a vote. So when when she heard that she couldn't vote with her Illinois license, she contacted the Wisconsin chapter of election protection. Her birth certificate, however, is that she would need in order to get uh, this uh, Wisconsin ID, that birth certificate's in Illinois. So she wasn't able to get an acceptable form of photo ID before the primary. So now she's taking a bus back to Illinois She went back on Wednesday afternoon back to Illinois to get her birth certificate, which is a three hour round trip. And she estimated the cost of getting the provisional ballot that she can uh, uh, so that she can uh, get her her provisional ballot account before Friday's deadline. That will add up to roughly one hundred dollars in addition to all of those hours. I could go on and on with these stories. So when I hear people telling me, uh, you know, Joe Scarborough, can we stop whining? There was uh, plenty of turnout. Plenty of people turned out. That's not how rights work. So you want to know what's really going on with that law? As if, uh, you know, I've been telling you for years, uh, voting rights advocates have been telling you for years. Congressman, Republican Congressman uh, Grothman just hinted at it when he said, oh, well, now we're going to win. Now we're going to win because uh, this is going to keep enough Democrats away from uh, uh, f- from the polls in November. So here's what's really going on. Todd Alba. Who used to uh, work in the Wisconsin State uh, Senate? He was a Republican chief of staff there, uh, and he uh, he quit the Republican Party. He was there in two thousand and eleven when Republicans passed this bill initially. That has been tied up in the courts ever since, and then was finally used on Tuesday. Todd Alba, I think this was on election day. Yeah, on primary day, he he went to uh, he took to his Facebook. And uh, Alba uh, told what, well, what these laws are really about. I'm going to just read you what he said, what he posted in full on Facebook uh, on primary day. Again, uh, the uh, Republican chief of staff at the Wisconsin State Senate. He said, you want to know why I left the Republican Party as it exists today? Here it is. This was the last straw. I was in the closed Senate Republican caucus. When the final round of multiple voter ID bills were being discussed, a handful of the GOP senators were giddy about the ramifications and literally singled out the prospects of suppressing minority and college voters. They were giddy about it. Think about that for a minute, Albaugh writes. Elected officials planning and happy to help deny a fellow American's constitutional right to vote in order to increase their own chances to hang on to power. A vigorous debate on the ideas was not good enough. Inspiring the electorate and relying on their agenda being better to get people to vote for them, that was not good enough. No, they had to take the coward's way out and come up with a plan to suppress the vote under the guise of, quote, voter fraud. The truth, he writes, there was almost none. Oh, wait. GOP Speaker Voss's estranged wife voted twice in both, uh, and GOP Speaker Voss is a Republican. She voted twice in both Idaho and Wisconsin, and a GOP staffer was caught voting twice. And I should add that uh, the photo ID law wouldn't have prevented either of those cases of actual voter fraud carried out by Republicans from, from having occurred. Alba continues, but it was good rhetoric. Yesterday, one of my employees, born in California, went to get his Wisconsin ID. He was told he couldn't use his California ID to get a Wisconsin ID without his birth certificate, which is back in California. Sound familiar? The result? He's not able to vote today. Here's a young man in his early 20s who is taking part and interested in voting for the first time in his life. He was excited to go to the polls. What kind of a state, a legislature, a political party is it that denies this young man his right, says Elbaugh. The GOP, he writes, was born out of greater opportunity and equality. Wisconsin, yes, the Wisconsin Republican Party, under the leadership of Republican Governor Robert M. Fighting Bob LaFollette, led the country in creating greater voting access to its citizens. The Wisconsin GOP was seen as a shining example of equality. That was the party I joined in the 80s and fought for. That party... He says, no longer exists. I don't belong to any party now. I don't think the Dems have a, have all the answers either. But my God, to watch a party I once fought for, deny a young man his voting rights. It boils my blood, leaves a pit in my stomach. It's time for a GOP implosion.
1: We just heard clips featuring the Young Turks break down how our broken election system consistently allows for Democrats to cumulatively receive more votes and still lose more elections. Decode DC explored the campaign to circumvent the Electoral College and make presidential elections a simple majority-wins system. The majority report spoke with Ari Berman about the urgent need to protect the vote. Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight focused on the logistical catastrophe that was the Arizona primary election. Tom Hartman demonstrated the historical pattern of Republicans working to suppress voter turnout. Democracy Now! focused on the extremely troubled New York primary election elections. Our activism for today is to demand modernization of our elections and restoration to the Voting Rights Act. And finally, we just heard on the broadcast stories of the consequences of disenfranchising voters and at least one former Republican who left his party over their deceitful and undemocratic tactics. If you're interested in diving much deeper into all of the issues surrounding our elections, then you really need to go subscribe to the broadcast right now. It's run by Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen from the Brad blog. It's the same team That brings us the Green News Report, and Brad has simply been the go-to guy on election shenanigans, dysfunctional electronic voting machines, voter suppression tactics, and everything in between for a decade now, so if this topic is of particular interest to you, then you definitely need to go check out the Bradcast. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. And today's calls are all in response to a question I posed after playing a clip from David Pakman endorsing a switch to gender unisex bathrooms to avoid the controversy of who's allowed to go where altogether, and this is what you had to say.
7: Hi Jay, it's Paula from Los Angeles. Um, I'm just calling in response to your uh, question about having non-cis guys call in about the gender segregated bathrooms. Basically we live in a world where there is sexual violence against women. Women are vulnerable in situations where There's closed doors, there's closed stalls. I personally wouldn't want to be going into a bathroom, especially if it's not a very busy bathroom where I'm going to be subject to another guy who might push me into a stall and do something that I don't want him to do. So besides the fact that women sometimes take refuge in bathrooms because they know it's a safe space from men who might be following them or bothering them. So... David Pakman's great, but his idea is not a good one in the world that we live in today. So that's my two cents. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your show. Bye. Hey, Jay, It's Megan from Baltimore calling to weigh in on the gender segregated bathroom thing. And I mean, honestly, I feel like it's just pretty silly that we still have this vestige of various gender-segregated spaces, and it's a waste of resources that I think you know, the probably not huge in the grand scheme of things you know, could be beneficial to address and just the safety thing makes no sense to me, like, people feel like bathrooms are some sort of hollowed ground where no one will ever come and like harm you and, you know, any perpetrator of violence just will, like, stand right outside the door because they, like, fear to enter something. and eh. I mean, honestly, I've also felt like the only reason we have kept them is because, like, straight cis people are scared of potentially pooping, like, in the same room as somebody they have a crush on or something. I, I don't know. But yeah, uh, keep up the good work, and bye. Bye. <laughs>
9: Hi, Jay. This is Aaron from Philly. I'm calling in regards to the conversation on unisex bathrooms and the LGBT rights fiascos that are going on in various states in general at this point. As regards the viability of unisex restrooms, uh, Philadelphia passed an ordinance uh, one or two years ago at this point That requires all new construction to have at least one single stall lockable unisex restroom on every floor. Which I believe is a solution that uh, one of the callers mentioned who's an architect is that really would just make his life easier uh, when he's designing buildings. And needless to say, the sky hasn't fallen. Uh, As to my own personal experience as a trans person... I used the locker room at the gym both before and after surgery. And, you know, the first few times, of course, I was nervous as hell. But then I realized that I was in there. Or I'm, I should put it this the other way. Everybody else was in there for the same reason I was, which was to get into their gym clothes before working out. Nobody was really paying anybody else that much attention. Finally, I think... This whole HB2 situation, plus when you see what's going on in Tennessee, and Mississippi, all over the country right now, um, even Pennsylvania, unfortunately. This is the hazard that incrementalism brings when fighting for social justice. If you look at the history of Stonewall, some of the very first people in the, what was then called gay liberation movement, were trans women of color. Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, are really the godmothers of the revolution as far as LGBT rights in America. And almost immediately they were pushed aside by people who thought that it was better to play the game of respectability politics and say hey, we're just like you, we just happen to want to get married to slash sleep with people who have yeah you know, the same gender that we have 40 50 years later here we are still fighting for some of these basic protections because it was always oh just one more thing you know first let's get you know you know sodomy decriminalized and then It was like, okay, well, then let's just get adoption rights. And then it was, oh, let's just get civil unions. And then it's like, oh, well, let's just get marriage. And then eventually we'll worry about, you know, workplace protections and housing discrimination. And, you know, if we have to throw out the tea because, hey, you know, those trans people are a little weird to mainstream folks. And, you know, we'll come back for you uh, when the time is right. Well, now we see where that's led us, where trans people are now being used as the Cudgel to fight back against all LGBT rights. I think it goes underreported that HB2 wasn't just about so-called bathroom bill issues. If you look at the entire bill, never mind that it strips local minimum wage laws, which is a totally different issue, but it also removes the right of any locality to pass LGBT protections in, you know, including major cities like Charlotte and it removes the right of action to sue for any kind of discrimination not just anti-LGBT discrimination but race and sex discrimination as well so you know this is exactly why you can never leave somebody behind in a movement because eventually you know when they're the the smallest group left and they aren't powerful enough to speak up for themselves just by sheer lack of numbers they're going to be what's used against you and the rights that you fought so hard to win that's all i've got to say on this Uh, took me a few days to actually calm down enough to really sit and record this message without it just being a string of expletives but there it is thanks so much jay stay awesome
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Another quick reminder today that the podcast awards nomination process is going on right now. Started in the middle of the month, and it goes through April 30th. So all you have to do is nominate the show once, you go to podcastawards.com, you fill in Best of Left details for the People's Choice category right at the top, and then the News and Politics category for obvious reasons, and uh, then you can fill in any other shows you happen to like in any other category, submit that, and you're done, assuming all goes well. Once we're nominated, then the voting process will happen later, and that's a whole separate thing, which I'll tell you about when it comes But uh, yeah, please remember to do that before the end of the month. Podcastawards.com. Secondly, today we're taking a break from the whole voting strategies debate because there's something else I want to talk about. In the previous episode, I played a clip of an interview from On the Media in which they talk about what they refer to as the election industrial complex, and they get into all the details about how buying TV campaign ads really does more to enrich campaign consultants than actually help the campaigns they're supposed to be promoting, as well as the role that big media companies play in perpetuating that system. Because they, of course, are the recipients of all of that money used to buy campaign ads and put them on the television. Uh, in that episode, I actually cut off the end of that interview because, frankly, I just I don't agree with the conclusion they came to. And so I didn't want to play it, but I do actually want to play it and just do it separately and give my rebuttal to it. So here is the end of that clip, so a bit that you heard, followed
11: by the rest of that interview. So everyone thought, well, maybe people will wise up. But, you know, this time we got more money than ever pouring in. It's drilled into all of us that elections come at a high price. There's no way around it. You've got to buy scads and scads of TV time and shower the American people with mail in hopes of just getting them to stagger out to the poll and maybe put a cross against your name. Last week, you tweeted, Andrew, liberals shouldn't fret about big money controlling elections. The consultants swipe it. Is that the lesson? I think it is. One of the reasons I wrote this thing was I was getting tired of, you know, people mobilizing to defeat Citizens United and that the problem is the money, which implicitly accepts that money wins. As I tried to explain in this piece, uh, you know, money doesn't win. So then the real lesson is if voters want to fix the system, then they actually just have to... Be involved. The money is, in a way, designed to shut you out. So, yeah, it would be a major effect. Andrew, thank you very much. You're welcome. Andrew Covern is Washington editor for Harper's Magazine. His piece, Down the Tube, Television Turnout and the Election Industrial Complex, is in the April issue of Harper's. Okay, so let's break that down. To be clear, first of all, I played
1: the first 90% of that interview because I think there is every reason to believe that he's totally correct that money spent on TV ads does very little to move the dial on voting numbers all that much, especially with the younger generation. The problem is with what I see as his painfully simplistic conclusion. If TV ads don't work, then money spent on them is wasted, and therefore we shouldn't worry about the corrupting influence of money in politics because it doesn't do any good anyways. And that is a very nice-sounding idea that is incredibly surface-level and I, I think totally misunderstands how money actually does corrupt politicians. In that clip, he actually recognizes that everyone is still conditioned to believe that spending money on ads and all the other things money goes to is critical to winning elections. And that is what I think is the far more important issue that should be used to build a conclusion regarding corruption. The way campaign contributors extract favors from politicians is a bit like the way a dog owner restrains their dog with an invisible fence. If you're familiar with those, the dog wears a collar, and then there are just these sort of invisible lines that go around the person's yard. If the dog crosses the line, they get zapped. Once the dog is convinced that they're going to get zapped if they stray too close to the edge of the yard, you can turn off the fence altogether, and the dog still won't leave the yard out of fear of getting zapped. Campaign ads don't even have to work. Politicians just have to believe that they do. As long as they stay convinced that they need huge amounts of money to run campaigns, they will continue to beg billionaires and corporations for large donations, and the very process of asking for that money begins the corrupting influence on them just by the pure fact that they are talking to rich people and business owners who can afford large campaign donations. It's like entering a reality distortion field. They lose track of what their actual constituents want, because they're only talking to super wealthy and business interests. So then we have to ask, can politicians be convinced that spending millions on ads is a waste of money? Maybe, but we have got a huge headwind with that strategy. First of all, there's just inertia. The simple idea that campaign ads are what we've always done, so that's what we should continue to do. People aren't that creative, unfortunately. Secondly, ad buying is so ingrained in the political campaign zeitgeist that it's actually part of the pay structure for the highly paid campaign consultants who run those campaigns. The guy on On the Media actually brings this up. Instead of getting a flat rate for their services, campaign consultants often get paid a percentage of the ad buys, which obviously creates a gigantic incentive for them to continue to convince their politician clients that they need ever-larger ad buys. And finally, as we've heard, the media companies love the status quo because all of that buying of ads brings them millions and millions of dollars. So they probably have the largest incentive to maintain the current system. Given that, what do you think they would do to a candidate who refuses to buy ads? You think they would allow that candidate to get any earned media? I mean, a freak show like Trump may be able to get away with that, but that's about all. Uh, You know, they already do election stories where the entire story is just about ad buys that a campaign has made. Campaign A has spent this much money and campaign B has spent this much money. Like, let's see what impact it'll have. Like, that's why you're seeing all these ads. If one campaign just refused to play along, how would they be framed? Obviously, they would be called unserious or weak or unelectable. And that's even when the media bothers to mention them. They would probably just get blocked out altogether. Well, I don't know. Like, there's one campaign that's trying to win and then another campaign that apparently doesn't care, probably shouldn't vote for them. They would basically bully the candidate to buy ads or else. That's why we need not only publicly funded campaigns, we need legislation to force media companies to provide a minimum amount of free airtime for political campaign ads as a prerequisite to maintain their broadcasting license. So a politician doesn't even have to decide to be corrupt. They don't even have to be ignorant about the fact that campaign ads on television aren't that useful The whole system is still going to corrupt them. It's still going to necessitate them to raise money and buy those ads one way or another. They are going to get squeezed from every direction to make the wrong decision and buy the ads, fund the media, and take the giant campaign contributions because there is no other way out. The only other way is with a total anomaly like someone like Bernie Sanders, who can excite enough people to raise money in a different way. But that's it. He still needs to raise the money. So don't let anyone convince you that just because political ads don't sway elections very far, that we don't need to worry about the effects of money in politics. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode All that information is always found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
9: And it's a crying shame How we get so trained
7: Stories and forget
9: how We can't see back.